I just started not caring, thinking I'm going to be myself and hopefully they'll get me fired and I can go back to New York. And the opposite happened. People started waking up to talents that I had and the strength I would show and the confidence. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Amy Emmerich, Chief Content Officer, Refinery29. Welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much. This is very exciting. I'm really excited to talk to you. And I've been looking over your history, your resume. You have been producing now for more than two decades. MTV, Vice Media, The Travel Channel. Mm -hmm. By the way, when you were at The Travel Channel, did you actually do the traveling stuff? Never went anywhere. What? I traveled on the Excella from New York to Maryland. (laughs) That was my travel experience. Experience. pretty big. Yes. You've been at Refinery29 now for about three years. Almost, yeah. And you went to school, I saw, at Iona College. I did. What did you study in college? I actually studied broadcasting. Really? They had a film department when I applied, and then it was gone by the time I got there. And you so, wanted to do film? And I did broadcasting. I think originally I thought scripted would be the world for me. And funny enough, I have found my way there eventually. But um, it was really about making television. I really wanted to make TV. Was that always something as a kid you were drawn to? It was. I grew up in the 70s, so the television was my babysitter. (laughs) Um, I have a brother who's 10 years older than me, and he watched Star Trek, and my sister watched The Brady Bunch. And that between those two shows, that's kind of the... the, it's exactly what defines my brain. Um, I can go to sci-fi, and I still love sci-fi. Um, but I think I really love comedy as well, which is what the Brady Bunch once was. Um, so, yeah, television always was – I was always drawn to it. When you got to Refinery29 three years ago, it was still a relatively young company. But I would imagine that social media has kind of changed the game in terms of everything that you're doing. I think social media and the timing – of the political climate right now. Um, yeah, they Refinery29 was started by four friends um, around a table in Brooklyn, really identifying emerging talent in fashion that was kind of popping up around Williamsburg. And it's still the four of them today, Christine, Piera, Philip, and Justin, um, all working from the creative to the business and really pushing us forward. When I came in about two and a half years ago, it was about adding video, sight, sound, and motion to everything that they were already doing. Um, they were making some video content, but it wasn't a business. And they brought me in with really big dreams. They said, let's go to Sundance. Let's make quality programming. Let's really push forth the effort that we're making around catalyzing the power of women. Um, and and it was, I, I just got drawn to the place the minute I walked in. Ambitious goals, but you went yeah. to Sundance. We did. So we created something called the Shatterbox Anthology which is 12 short films directed by women about the dynamics of power. Um, we created this based off the statistics that came out of Dr. Stacey L. Smith in USC. It was a study commissioned by Sundance Women's Lab about um, the lack of women directing films in Hollywood. And it really talked about the fiscal cliff, as she calls it, and the responsibility to get more women out there. We were really frustrated. I was kind of angry as someone who used to shoot myself at why did I leave something I loved so greatly and what is happening in the environment and what can we do about it? 
And the fun part about Refinery29 is they let me take really big risks. This wasn't something on the roadmap. You can't guarantee a Sundance acceptance. Um, We started to get to know the women of Sundance and the women's lab that they have. And we sponsored a Sundance women's brunch and started to work with them and build our contacts. contacts, And we built the um, Rolodex of the new emerging women, directors and producers who are out there, who we could really also market them them as brands. So it isn't just about the films, it's about the women themselves. And, you know, the producer, Shannon Gibson, who works internally on this project, who works with the directors and picks out the projects through an RFP system, um, a couple of them uh, got accepted into Sundance and one the one of them, a new Valia's film, Lucia, Before and After, won the jury prize this past January. Congratulations! Yeah, it's uh, it is amazing. They these twelve women, the directors, each so unique. You know, different points of view covered everything from reproductive rights to diversity, Black Lives Matter. Um, it was a range of content that really identified the fact. It, that not enough women have the creative freedom to tell the stories through their own voice. You said something when you were talking about all of this that really struck me. You said that you left. You almost said it with some semblance of regret. So so why did you leave? Yes. Um, so I used to shoot documentaries um, before reality TV took over. Oxygen, when it launched by Jerry Laybourne, um, they did a program where I learned how to shoot prosumer cameras, the Sony PD-150 back then. And it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I got paid to travel the country, meet people who were in law enforcement. We did a show of women in law enforcement. I filmed brides getting married through those really intense four weeks leading up to your wedding. But it's such a personal moment. I filmed hospitals, uh, doctors in the ER, something for the New York Times TV at the time. You worked Um, with HBO, too. And I did HBO Cat House, the most famous one. People have most questions about the Cat House. (laughs) What Um, it was like behind the scenes in that environment. That brothel in Nevada. Uh, Um, Care to share any? any? Oh, I've seen it all. Um, I think that's kind of what gives me the perspective, though, is I filmed a lung transplant, a heart transplant. And then you can film a threesome at the Cat House. So none of this were things. They were all taboo topics, especially sex. Um, And I was kind of thrusted into it. Police have their own way of life that they'll even say their spouses can't really understand. I got paid to ride along um, for months on end with police departments around the country filming women, very few at the time, um, the one woman on a SWAT team in Arizona, the homicide detective who didn't give up. Um, And so it kind of like was a very special time and I was very good at it. I, I think I could get people to trust me innately. Mm-hmm. My intentions are real. I did believe what they were doing was something I could have never thought I would be capable of. And I think they could feel that. Um, I also could thrive around chaos. So I was never afraid to jump into a gunfight with a police officer um, or be scared around a homicide scene. So I really thought I was great at doing this. And we would shoot half-hour shows, Women in the Badge, um, real weddings from the knot. Uh, and something just started to happen as I got older in my late 20s where everyone back home would say, well, when are you going to start dating somebody and get married and have a baby? And it started planting seeds in my head of how am I going to do that? I'm on the road. I'm traveling probably eight months out of the year. Where do you put a baby in that? There was no options for me based off the field I was in at the time. If there were, I couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. 
and everybody around me was men. And a few of those men um, would say to me, you know, maybe you want to go to the producer route. You can, you know, stay at home, um, have a family. And I think I was just young enough with no other options or aware of them that I believed it. And that's the, you know, the track I took. And don't get me wrong, I am very lucky. I feel, you know, very lucky and privileged with what I'm able to do today. But I loved shooting. So when I look at that fiscal cliff, I question myself. Can I support my family if I stay out in the field? What would that home life look like? Mm -hmm. How would I do that? And maybe if I would have had some mentors who could have shown me a way or shown me a way through, I could have stuck with it. So what do you say then to young women who are thinking the same thing now? There are trade-offs no matter which path you take. Absolutely. The work-life balance is is something made up. Yeah. Um, there, yeah, there's like I've heard people say you you can have it all, but not all at the same time. Correct. You know, all these different ways of putting it. But what's having it all? You know, right. I realize lately we've been talking a lot about messaging that's out there. And I find the message is you have to have it all or you have nothing. That's not the message. The message is find what's important to you, mm-hmm. what is really truthfully making you happy, which I don't really think is a big enough message for us to find out what truly makes us happy, not what society is trying to guide for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to tell everyone, A, first of all, don't give up. A lot of things can happen. Life is long. I'm turning 42 this year. I still feel 20 in my head. My body doesn't. But That's my, such a good point. I mean, I still got, you know, I don't know. My parents are 70 and they're doing great. So I look at like the life is so long and you can have a lot of things and then try to find another way. I have two kids, so I'm watching way too many Disney movies right now. <laughs> but Dory um, talking about find another way. There's always another way. And uh, and then seek out. Seek out. It doesn't have to be a direct mentor, but seek out information on other possibilities or opportunities so you could try to have everything. Don't try to have it all at the same time. So given the world that you were in, you probably met a lot of people just being on the ground doing the work you did with Oxygen and HBO. Mm-hmm. When you look at younger people who are coming up in the industry right now, what's the best way to connect with the right people? First of all, I didn't know if any of them were right. And I probably learned more from the ones that were wrong. Um, Because they gave you bad advice or because they gave you good advice? I think whenever you have to go through a tough time, the lessons are greater. Mm -hmm. So even if you have the worst boss you've ever had in your whole life, I guarantee you learn what not to do, which just makes you a better person in the next stage. So I I don't know if I knew at the time what was right or wrong. I, I think actually even now when I look back, I really appreciate working for Rosie O'Donnell or working for Jerry Laybourne. But in that moment, I was early in my 20s just trying to even figure out my own life. I don't think I appreciated it as much as I probably could have. They were tough work environments or you just didn't realize how big of a deal it was. I mean, I look back now and those are some pretty impressive, really strong women. I didn't know to look at them like that. I was just trying to survive and do the best that I could um, and move ahead. But uh, they they were all tough work environments. Anyone will tell you a live show. You know, a live show is definitely a stressful work environment. (laughs) And Rosie demanded the best of everyone. But I learned more in that experience with those people, some of the best. We recently had a 20-year reunion of the Rosie O'Donnell show. Um, And seeing just how many of them have won Emmys and are still running half of the programs that are on television today. It was an amazing group of people. But it was my first job. I had no idea that's what was happening around me. Um, 
Kit Laybourne, Jerry's husband, who was an executive producer on Women and the Badge, would say to us, you know, really appreciate the moment you're in right now because I'm telling you it's going to be really hard to find another one to replicate it. And he was right. I've had a lot of success and so much fun in my career, but each moment is so unique um, and, and comes with so many great things. So at the time, I don't know if I knew those were the people that were going to help change the trajectory of my career. I just looked for really good people. Um, ask a lot of questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. What's been the toughest lesson along the way for you? Um, I think the toughest lesson is that you just have to climb the ladder. And in order to climb that ladder, you have to look a certain way, talk a certain way. Um, So I think realizing that it was my own true voice that helped me get ahead. But I probably didn't have the confidence in that until I was 35, 36. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, I tried to fit in with the way they wanted me to look. This is what an executive looks like. These are the kind of shoes you wear and the suits you should wear, Um, the color for your skin tone, how your hair should be worn, how you present yourself. Um, And the more I tried to fit in, the more uncomfortable I was, the more frustrated I would become. Um, My voice was different and I was holding it back so that I could get ahead with this group, whatever group it was, whatever network I was working in. Um, And it wasn't until I was kind of fed up. I think my inside voice knew it's fed up and it wanted to come out. When were you fed up? Um, When I was working at Travel Channel and I was doing a long commute and there was a lot of changes happening at that network. And um, my boss was no longer there. And I kind of felt like I don't want to work in Maryland anymore. Mm. I'm going to just start doing whatever... I feel like um, <laughs> I called it office space. If you remember in that movie, he just you decides, slammed a computer in oh, a hayfield. I, I literally was saying anything I wanted. Um, uh, I literally would say, "What would?" It, and then my colleague at the time, "What would office space do?" Yes, yes. And then he started saying, "What would Emmerich do?" Because I just started not caring, thinking I'm going to be myself, and hopefully they'll get me fired, and I can go back to New York. And it, the opposite happened. People started waking up to talents that I had, and the strength I would show, and the confidence. And my, I was like, wait a minute, what's happening here? This is the opposite effect, but this is a great one. How, how do I use this? How do I stay strong and confident and not you know, lose this? Um, and I started looking around for jobs and realized I don't think I can do TV anymore. There wasn't a place where I could fit this now mm-hmm. really hugely confident voice anywhere. Um, and so I had the – I just got – I used one of the contacts that I had in the past through Vice Media, and I just took a really big risk and said, let's make a change and let's try something brand new. Um, so, yeah, and then the rest. And now you're at Refinery29. And it was Refinery29 that you were thinking at that time? That, that was the big risk no, at the so moment? or I was at um, Travel Channel, and I started interviewing with um, some amazing people for other network jobs. And Eddie Moretti from Vice Media reached out to me and said, Emmerich, come over to the dark side. And I had worked with them at MTV, but this was different. This was working for Vice. And this was five, six years ago. People didn't know what Vice was. Mm -hmm. So I asked agents. I asked my network executive friends. And everyone said, why would you leave television? No one knows what Vice is. That's risky. And I needed needed a change. Mm -hmm. To your point about why would you leave television, the, the tricky part, in my opinion, about television is that for the most part, television has set shows 
And those set shows have set voices. And while there's innovation, you know, I I think that there's always going to be innovation to some degree everywhere. Mm -hmm. The world of digital and what Vice is trying to do and, and a lot of other outlets are trying to do, it just says, okay, we don't have this set thing. We can actually evolve and develop in any possible direction. And there's a lot of experimentation that's going on as a result of that because there are so many more platforms. I mean, look, I also think innovation comes out of need. Yeah. And you have to disrupt. If you cannot fit in, you have to disrupt, build your own way. So I think that it was much more about the bureaucracy. Everyone was very used to a system. Mm. Yeah. So there was a set way on how to do things. And I no longer could fit in that set way. I wanted to find new. I wanted to find a new path. Um, and they were willing to try to carve that out and take those chances. So um, innovation, yes, to your point, television is creating some wonderful quality content. I was not able to get the content I wanted to make mm-hmm. and I wanted to see pushed through that machine. So I wanted to go to a place where I could have um, that influence and Vice afforded me that. Um, and it was, again, I could not have known how much I was learning at the time. It was a very big transitional year for them, um, very aggressive turning point. Um, but I never looked back. I, I definitely held on to my TV roots for a while, and I kept my title similar to something I could rotate over to television if I needed to go back. But You um, had your you, in your mind there was like the fallback plan a little exactly, bit? Okay. Exactly. But look, that's what happens. Plans don't work. I get to Vice, and I find out that I'm going to have trouble having a baby. Okay, great. Now what? I've been putting my career first my entire life. I'm at a company with a man that is not going to fail. He's so confident. Again, there's that word. He's so confident of everything he is doing. He is not going to fail. This is a huge opportunity. I have a great position, but I can't have a baby. And trying to go through the IVF process in an environment of very young, mostly millennial men wasn't probably going to set me up for success. Hmm. So the minute I got into that place, I was already having personal issues against the professional ones. And then I made my first personal choice, I felt. I felt I always put my career first, and now I had to put a personal decision first, and I, I left. Um, I was very, Because of wanting to have a baby. Yes. I needed an environment that if you go through IVF, I knew I would need to be very patient and probably relaxed. Mm-hmm. And you need some personal space, at least for me. Mm-hmm. I did. Um, it was a very emotional time. It's very taxing. And my head just wasn't in the game to be able to push through how I normally can. Um, and really, there's always a little fight in me. And I didn't necessarily had it. My fight had to go towards the fight for the kid, not mm-hmm. the fight for the job and for the content. So um, I was very lucky that Scripps, which owns Travel Channel, was opening up a digital business. And they said, well, we want you back. And it was a better environment at the time for me. Um, I had an office. I could go to the doctor whenever I needed to. The office was close to the doctor's office. Um, but it was very hard to make that choice, especially since I wasn't re- as appreciative as I probably should have been with what I was learning while at Vice. I appreciate you for sharing that because that's extremely vulnerable, I'm sure. Um, I think that's how we break down the taboo topics. Yeah. I mean, and I have to say, even Refinery29, when I went in for that interview and I met Christine, who's the global editor-in-chief and one of the co-founders, we bonded over this this experience. I have been very lucky with a successful IVF process, and she's still, you know, dealing with that. 
Um, and I am comfortable sharing it because she has shared it. She mm-hmm. was already writing about it on Refinery29. So I didn't feel like I had to hide it during that interview process. Um, so I think that's one of the things that we fight now is why is something a taboo? Why is trying something mm-hmm. you can't talk about? Mm-hmm. Why is the first three months something you can't mention? That's when you're actually as a female when you're pregnant, the first three months can be the worst. Mm-hmm. You're the most tired. You're vomiting. You could have sickness. And you can't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because of the shame of miscarriage. This is all ridiculous. This is something that happens to so many women. And the more we can talk about this and own it, it will help all of us um, kind of get through that, be more educated, know about our bodies. Um, even going through the process of realizing if we could have a baby or not, I realized how little information I had on my own body. Mm-hmm. And so I Yeah, in this world of so much information, it's everywhere. But we don't talk We know about so it. little. We know so little because it's not comfortable to talk about sex or your anatomy. Um I try not to say the word vagina all the time. I'm sorry. <laughs> but um I, I just feel like the more I could say it, the more normal it will feel. Yeah. Um and then we will get more educated about it. It should not be a taboo. This is anatomy. I think for a lot of women one of the reasons it's a taboo, they're comfortable with friends and family knowing about the situation, but what they're fearful of is the boss who, the minute they find out you're trying to have a baby, is the minute they start looking for somebody who can do your job for you. You're ambitious, you're motivated, you want your job, you want to be respected, you also want to have a family. But there's that moment where you don't want your boss to start looking at you differently. Nope. And I would, oh, it was so annoying that I was crying. I was annoyed at the entire situation that I was even emotional about it. Um, And then I was annoyed at why did I work my ass off for so long? And now it's even an option that I may have to stop that to do X, Y, and Z. Um, Yes, no, it's, uh, I I know there's that fear. I think, look, I didn't, I am very lucky because I did not have that problem. You know, Mm -hmm. Scripps knew that I was going to be trying. I was very open about it right from the start. I was in a position to do that. And then when I left Scripps to go to Refinery, I was pregnant when I met um, the guys at Refinery. So my first interview with Justin and Philip, I was very early. I was eight weeks pregnant with my second. Um, So I didn't bring it up. I also didn't go into that job thinking I wanted it. I thought, I'm eight weeks pregnant. Mm. No one searches for a new job when they're eight weeks pregnant, as society would like me to think. Um, And I really even doubted myself. Like, how can I do that? But when I walked into that office and there were so many women, I'd never seen that many women in an office before. And they were young and the energy and unique individuals everywhere you looked. Um, I felt really comfortable and instinctly in a way I hadn't been. But again, it was me who was questioning I don't know if I could do this. And when they offered me the job, I said to them, I am pregnant. I'm not sure you want this. Wow. Because I would have to. I'm taking my three months maternity. It sounds like you want to move really fast. You may want to consider another candidate. What is wrong with me? I'm a pretty tough chick from (laughs) Queens, New York. And I'm like giving up this great thing that I knew I wanted. And I give Justin and Philip a ton of credit. And they did not have kids at the time. Um, And Justin now has one. Um, But at the time, they said, listen, this is a growing company filled with young women who are also going to most likely choose to have a family. Um, And when they have that, you will be a role model for that. And I was I was hooked just by the way they even responded to it. Phenomenal. And and, uh, And I didn't start the job until after my maternity. But we did work 
together on a few things. And now my kids know that place. You know, they come in for my birthdays. Um, everybody who works in the company, and I'm talking about young millennial women, love my Instagram feed because I put my kids <laughs> having smoothies in the morning. Um, but they really appreciate Kids are like candy on Instagram. When you have your kids on your Instagram page, it's so much better than when you have you on your Instagram page. Absolutely. No one wants to see me at six in the morning. But Not flash. you, but all kids. Yeah. All kids. But there's some pressure there too, right? I'm now a thought leader. You have a C-suite title, Emmerich, your thought leader. Maybe you should have an Instagram account that just has beautiful quotes and the inspiration I pull from the day. I was like, you're insane. <laughs> I can. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I'm running a high-growth company, um, and you think that I could start another Instagram account, not me. Um, I said, this is the reality, and people should see the reality. My kids are my reality. I am doing the best I can to wake up at 6 in the morning dress them, feed them, um, you know, try to be a mom for two hours before I go to work. And then I'm at work until any hour. I mean, I am a openly workaholic. I love it. I really believe in it. Um, and I'm not going to apologize for it. But that's my life is my Instagram feed is going to be the kids eating smoothies in the morning. Um, and I And I think what I have seen through our audience and through the staff of Refinery is they applaud that vulnerability and realness to a level I wouldn't have expected. They did not expect me to try to fit into some perfection of what an executive is. They really appreciate that I'm showing you this is the real truth and it's hard um, and it's messy and uh, but this is what you got to expect. If you have a perfect picture, you're, you're never going to be satisfied. Your advice to other women who hope to pursue a similar path? Um, I believe you got to take risks and you got to work your ass off. That, that there's don't be a victim. Don't look for somebody else to open that door for you. You got to do it yourself. Find another way around, um, and really stay true to your voice. So, what's the worst advice you've received along the way? I do believe the worst advice was play the part and fit in in order to climb the ladder. I talk a lot about the lattice. Look for another way around. Find you, the side door. Find the side door or. Look, by the way, even question if you want to be on the top of that right. ladder. It's not as much fun as it looks <laughs> all the time. Um, and some there is no shame in the game of saying you like the position that you're in, no matter where that sits. So um, I, I think that's always the worst advice. It, again, it, you know, find what you how do you want to do this? Um, I, don't, I don't know. That's probably the, definitely the worst. Just climb the ladder. Work really hard and this happens for you. That's also not true. By the way, I always talk about working really hard, but you've got to learn how to manage people's expectations and communicate. And I do think now more than ever, emotional intelligence is very, very important. Staying as true to your feelings and those around you so that you can work the situation to your advantage to get the outcome that you may want. Um, if you don't play the game, um, you're not going to get what you want or probably deserve. Amy Emmerich, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a review. It really does help get the word out. And don't forget, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. Special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.